The Prime Minister said something interesting today about her son. Was it about his sense of direction? <laughs> she described him as her favourite child. Is that interesting? The way she said it was, without equivocation or thought, who would do that? Openly admit preferring one child to another, especially twins. Any honest parent. What? Any honest parent would admit to having a favourite. Who's our favourite? My favourite or your favourite. Is it different? I'd say so, yes. All right, you first. Who's yours? Anne. You said that alarmingly quickly. Well, because it didn't require thought. Philip! And your favourite is... I don't know. Liar! It's true. I really don't know. Your lack of self-knowledge sometimes is breathtaking. On balance, I'd say that was an asset. <laughs> Everyone knows who your favourite is. Do they? Welcome to The Crown, the official podcast. I'm Edith Bowman, and this show will follow the fourth season of the Netflix original series, The Crown, episode by episode, taking you behind the scenes, speaking with many of the talented people involved and diving deep into the stories. Today, we're talking about episode four, entitled Favourites. After Margaret Thatcher's son, Mark, goes missing whilst competing in the Paris-Dakar rally, she reveals to Elizabeth that Mark is her favourite child. Shocked that a mother can have a favourite, Elizabeth embarks on one-to-one meetings with her four children in a bid to get to know them better. Now, we'll cover specific events and scenes that feature in this episode, so if you haven't watched episode four yet, I suggest you do it now, or at least very soon. Coming up later, we'll hear from the wonderful Erin Doherty, a.k.a. Princess Anne, about how playing the princess has affected her real-life relationships. Mainly in my, in my like family relationships, I'll just drop a couple of truth bombs and be like, well, well that, that wasn't me, <laughs> but it came from somewhere that needed to be Thanks, Anne. Yeah, listened to. So, yeah, I'll go home and, yeah, thank her. We'll also hear from hair and makeup designer Kate Hall on creating the looks of Thatcher and Diana. And that haircut isn't something that any hairdresser now would know how to do, and it's totally counterintuitive. But first, I once again spoke to show creator and writer Peter Morgan at his house in London. He revealed to me this episode, Favourites, was one of his favourites of the series. So I began by asking why. Because of writing the two women as mothers. I mean, all parents, even the best ones, spend most of their time, as far as I can tell when I talk to friends, thinking what a bad job they're doing. And we haven't had much of an opportunity to explore the Queen as a mother, probably for the same reason as she hasn't had much time to explore herself as a mother because she's so busy being who she has to be. And so when Mark Thatcher got lost in the desert, I had this idea. It just came to me, I suppose, as a parent myself. There was a line at the very end where the Queen says... It's not Margaret Thatcher's child, it's all our children that are lost in the desert, in their own particular deserts. And I was very keen to use this episode as a chance to explore not just what kind of a mother the Queen is to her children, but also how each of those children had been struggling. And because it struck me reading books, but also all the research that we'd done, how lost most of them were at this point. Uh, funnily enough, with the exception of, uh, of Prince Andrew, who it's hard to imagine now, but he was, he was the Buzz Lightyear, as it were, of, of, of the royal family at the time. Prince Andrew, Your Majesty. Your Majesty. 
Mummy. How did you get away with that? Well, the chopper. I told them the truth. That I'd been summoned on a matter of national importance by the Commander-in-Chief of the Armed Forces. It's a mother and son lunch. Hardly a matter of national importance. You're the Queen, and I'm second in line to the throne. We as much as break wind, it's a matter of national importance. Oh, stop it. It's true. <laughs> and as it happens, there are one or two things I'd like to discuss with you. And he wasn't short of self-confidence. And with justification, real justification, thinking to himself, I'd be doing a better job of being the heir than Charles, you know, because Charles, by this point, it's, it's already clear that he and Diana are not ma a match made in heaven. And, of course, uh, Anne is already having trouble and Edward is struggling at school. Mark Thatcher, well, he really was lost in the desert and, and he shared some of the characteristics with Prince Andrew of being over, an overindulged uh, favourite son. And Carol Thatcher, of course, who struggled with being coming number two in her mother's affections. And so here you have this quite, quite a complicated landscape, really, emotional landscape, with a lot of children struggling in being the, the, the children of particularly iconic or successful parents and of, of the very simple business of some being the favourites and some not. And, of course, that taboo about, as a parent, do you have a favourite or don't you? You know, uh, I won't ask. Some days, yes, some days, no. <laughs> yeah, exactly. it changes. I have favourites. It's, it's a different one every day of the week, yeah. yeah. But that, what's interesting, though, because we obviously have, we, we've very much connected as an audience to Charles and Anne because they've been very much part of the story up until this point. But Edward and Andrew have very much been in the kind of background, so to speak, and we haven't really got to to have much experience of them. Was that, how did you approach introducing them and how important was it for you? Because within these meetings that they have individually with the Queen, it's a it's an incredible kind of deep dive in a short space of time into them as people, them in terms of what they've been through, what they're going through and where they are now and how all that in the past has made them in the position they are now. I think because I realised, look, I'm not going to give this character... Uh, a lot of screen time because a bit like Prince Charles, actually, I, Charles's view of the monarchy is that it should be a very, very slimmed down business around the Queen and her and the two subsequent heirs, him and, and William. And that really beyond that, they should slightly just be left to enjoy, you know, private lives out of the spotlight and, and also without the protection of civilist money and so forth. I feel the same, really, narratively. I don't want it to be about the whole extended family. And even though the the crown has its impact on everyone in the family, necessarily, because, you know, the closer you are to it, and everyone's fight is to get as close to it as possible, there are only a certain amount of characters that I really want to focus on, and it's their proximity to the gold, as it were, that, that shapes it for me. One particular historian, one historian, had this view that the first two children the Queen had, Charles and Anne, were very much... She had the children, but she was really preoccupied with trying to find her feet and, and do her job. Then there came a point where she got a little bit, and, a little bit more confident and that the second two children, Andrew and Edward came at a time where she was much more ready to be a mother. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure they had a better time of it as children. 
And I think it's telling that her closest relationship now is with Sophie Wessex and Prince Edward. That's the impression I get. And, and I thought it was interesting to see her motherhood divided into two teams. That first came Charles and Anne, and, and then came Andrew and Edward, and that she was much more relaxed as a mother mm. with the second team. And uh, that Anne probably didn't need that much mothering based on what I see as her, of her as a character. Mm. Uh, and Charles, unfortunately, needs a great deal of love. He needs a lot of love and a lot of this. And she was probably unable to give it. And his need for it and his demonstrative need for it might have made her ability run even further, as it were, yeah. retreat even further. Mm -hmm. When I heard that theory, that it was something that somebody said to me once, it instantly chimed. And then we looked into it, whether it made sense. And, of course, the gap of time between the two and... I, I thought it was a really smart observation that somebody had made. And so I thought, I, I'm going to make the decision to, to go with that. It, it wasn't my idea. But the minute I heard it, I thought that was really smart, emotionally intuitive and, and plausible. I'm also very proud, uh, actually, in this episode, of the way in which it quietly and stealthily and economically, and I hope elegantly, deals with the Falklands War and the build-up to that. One final thing, Prime Minister. A small situation developing in the South Atlantic. The governor of the Falkland Islands, Rex Hunt, has asked for permission for an ice-breaking vessel, HMS Endurance, to be sent from Port Stanley to the island of South Georgia to evict a group of Argentine scrap metal workers. HMS Endurance is currently at Port Stanley and could therefore be manned with a detachment of Royal Marines who would easily outnumber the scrap metal workers who are trespassing. I'll take it to the Foreign Secretary. At the end of the episode, you're watching the young men who are ultimately other mothers' children on boats going off in that task force, going to war, and so... All those things, juggling all those elements, the fact that we told the story, I'd never known really uh, of what led to the Falklands War, what the precise sequence of events were. Mm. And, and I'm really proud of how we told that story in, in quite a throwaway and economical way. But trust me, it only did that. It only became that after a lot of work and a lot of condensation. And what are the key moments? What are the key events that led to... Thatcher making the decision to go to war, you know, and the fact that it started with scrap metal workers and the fact that it started with misunderstandings and all that stuff with a geological mission, mm. that kind of detail. Mm. Uh, it was wonderful to put that in alongside family stuff. So we know that in real life, Mark went missing in January of 1982 and that things started kicking off in the Falklands March of that year. So a little bit later on, but whilst Mark was missing, it was like her role as mother kind of overtook her role as the prime minister and she almost kind of, she dropped the ball a bit in terms of her focus. It was on Mark and where he was, not on running the country. Everybody's told me about that. I, I, I spoke to Robert Armstrong, who uh, at the time I think was cabinet secretary. He, he told me she, it was that period of time was the one time that she was absolutely incapacitated, nothing. He said she, she was never not... 100% game ready. In those few days while Mark Thatcher was lost in that desert, she was not just not game ready, she was utterly incapable of speech. And I thought, 
Well, that's interesting because we've seen how ambitious she is as a politician and how committed she is as a prime minister. And yet her, her concern for her son was such that she couldn't do the simplest task. And with the Queen, it's always interesting for me to write her being incapable of that emotion. And so suddenly here is Thatcher, who we always think of as, well, that's the Iron Lady. And, and we, I think we think of the Queen as a softer character, less able to access emotion of that kind, which is interesting. We'll talk more in depth about the Queen as a mother later on with director Paul Whittington. But first, this season of The Crown sees the introduction of two monumental figures of recent British history, Margaret Thatcher and Lady Diana Spencer. Recreating two of the most recognisable women in recent memory was always going to be a huge challenge. To find out how this was achieved so well, I sat down with hair and makeup designer for The Crown, Kate Hall, who began by telling me how getting Thatcher's look exactly right took some time. We definitely didn't have it right. I know there was there was a lot of gaspy wowness at the first camera test, but Peter Morgan was straight on the phone to be like, it's not right. <laughs> Which is like... Was he specific about what... Oh, oh yeah. Um, no, in that he never tells us how to do it because mm. he's really cool like that. So he'll be like, listen, your job is your job. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to do it. He's busy enough, but it's not right. You know, I remember the thing he said to me that had the, the biggest impact was he said, we cannot look at her through the prism of what we remember now. And I'm not quoting him directly, but it's true that we were probably judging her as a child of the 80s mm-hmm. and and looking at her both in the in the research, but also with my own memory. Yeah. And he, he just kept saying, don't judge her. And when we're camera testing, we do typically camera test their first looks. And that gives us a little bit of time to to have a journey with them. Yeah. And and although we have a rough plan, we don't necessarily get to the end, all their end looks immediately. Like there is a little bit of time where we're exploring and and finding those last looks. And he was very, very keen on the fact that when we see Thatcher in, in 1979, she is a woman full of promise and hope and passion and vigour and a kind of brand and a new conservative image and that really resonated I felt like yes you're right that was exactly what was happening and he was very keen that we didn't kind of uglify Gillian Mm -hmm. he was saying you know don't be sort of distracted by the fact that she's really beautiful and we don't necessarily think of Margaret Thatcher in the same way yeah and and again he was spot on but we went through Definitely, I think it was three camera tests before Peter was like really delighted. Mm. And to be honest, that's the thing I care most about. So it feels with Thatcher as well. The 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 you know with Diana, it's quite obvious, visually obvious the mm. the the journey that her yeah. her look goes on. With mm-hmm. Thatcher, it's a much more subtle. It's interesting because obviously, so with Diana, we used beauty makeup to age her, and with Gillian, we took the makeup away. But but what was great about Gillian was she has absolutely zero vanity about all of it. So she just wants to get it right. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I said I did a lot of her stuff for at 10 and I, I said what I'd really like to try is not using any foundation and concealer 
um, and, and making you as exposed and raw as possible. And then we used bits of special effects, sort of bruised tone around her eyes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we still did her kind of game face, you know, her lipstick and her kind of sparkly blue eyeshadow that she loved so much. Um, but, but you feel the weatheredness of Yeah, her, so yeah. just taking away that kind of pristine mask that she had. I think it was that kind of vulnerability for EP10 that really helped the transition. And, and we imacked a bit more hair out of the hairline and frazzled the wig a bit more. <laughs> I love that scene where she's spraying the the, uh, the L-net as well. Yeah. Like, it's just, like, it's kind of... Like, again, it's part of her armour in Absolutely, a way. yeah, part of her. And we know that Thatcher, so Thatcher did have a hairdresser and she would have her kind of roller set and brush out. But we also know that she could do it herself and did do so if she couldn't get a hair appointment she would say well just make sure there's a set of carmens and a, and a brush and some hairspray in my room and I'll do it myself so we know that she just back home to the living daylights out of her hair and off she went <laughs> yeah I don't think I've ever seen a picture of her without the do no I haven't absolutely and I assume she slept like that because I can't imagine how I can't imagine what she looked like otherwise and then actually once you start to look at the pictures it's a bit of a nightmare because then you realise because I have them all in chronological order in my Mm -hmm. books that her hair changed colour every two weeks because she was using those rinses so it would it would be quite a punchy red one day and then it would fade out to a kind of naff strawberry blonde three days <laughs> and so there wasn't really anything to hang your hat on mm-hmm. except for this shape and this texture and we made it more detailed at the beginning and less detailed towards the end how long does it take Gillian Anderson to transform into Thatcher in a makeup chair in the morning? From memory, it was about an hour and 15. That's not bad. That's not bad, is it? No. I am delighted to be able to confirm the wonderful news that the rescue mission has been successful. Now, of course, you are all used to thinking of me as Prime Minister, but what the last few days has shown me very clearly is that above all else, I am a mother. Now, thank you, if you will excuse me. Can we talk about Diana? The most photographed lady ever. I think that's the kind of one of those accepted facts, the most photographed woman. Does that make your job easier or harder? I think in some ways it makes it easier because the volume of reference is so accessible, which is different to previous seasons, but harder in the sense that everybody thinks they know her inside out. And so you have this kind of, you have an obligation to people because they love her yeah. and, and and they feel so passionate about her that you really do, you feel like you have an obligation even more so to get it right. And when you say get it right, I guess there's a fine line, isn't there, between you have these reference points of these mm-hmm. public appearances that mm-hmm. she's made, but we also have these private moments mm-hmm. um, that are obviously dramatic interpretation of Mm -hmm. real life Mm. but also the actress Emma and how she's playing her yeah and then your own creative input on that 
Yeah, so the the whole, it, it's definitely a process and it's this sort of fine balance. It's an interaction between our department, what we can physically do, what it's possible to do and sort of pull off mm. within the technology and the budget and everything that's available. Plus, you have to leave room for Emma's performance because nobody wants to do a parody. And then there's also, of course, the script. That's there's what we're all imagining. But with Diana, there's also this wealth of stuff that we know because mm. not only is there all of the, the imagery, but you know, there's the recordings. But Netflix has the kind of those psychologist recordings of her speaking. So you feel like there's this this kind of existing intimate portrayal of her. Mm. It's sort of just about putting all the pieces together. And for us, it was about as per usual, really finding that silhouette yeah. and and finding a way to give her a journey as well because Emma's, Emma's really young and we leave Diana in 1991 and, and you see her, she sort of goes from childhood to adulthood in our series and the great thing with Emma was that she, she definitely had that range but, but we had to make that visibly real mm-hmm. and to do that within this shooting schedule that meant that you couldn't just be sort of switching your wig every three seconds or restyling it. And you have as well with Diana, you have those specific looks. So you have the kind of the bowl cut uh-huh. and the sort of really almost like flushed cheek mm-hmm. look that we know yeah. that she started off with too. And the hair kind of got yeah. a bit more flamboyant mm-hmm. and the eyeliner and, and these looks that she's learning about herself and finding yeah. her image as well. And yeah. you, you see that as well. It's wonderful to watch that style icon almost journey, I guess, in a way. Yeah, so, and we really plot when to sort of spend those tricks. Like, when do, when do we bring in the blue eyeliner? You know? <laughs> and, yeah. and I, you know, the great thing was going, going shopping during prep and, and trying to find as many different blues as we could possibly find to test them all on camera to see which, because actually you lose quite a lot of those blue tones, to see which ones would pop enough because people recognise it and they want to see, they yeah. really want to see the electric blue eyeliner. Yeah, because I imagine that if you, I mean, trying to source stuff that was around then, like you say, it might be the real thing that she wore, but it doesn't work on camera. I mean, I actually bought, I bought loads of stuff in actually quite cheap makeup shops because they tend to have that like now the kind of the chemical technology of makeup is all about it being kind of ultra smooth and really blendable and it's all better mm-hmm. and what we wanted was stuff that wasn't quite as nice <laughs> yeah. so you know you're, yeah. you're in like really cheap makeup suppliers and just going crazy and looking insane with it all over you trying to test loads of different stuff but it was great I loved it it was really good fun I wanted to ask who you test on well, do you have I like mean, a? In my head, you see, you have like a, you know, those girls' world heads <laughs> yeah. that you used to have as a kid. You have a Diana one, and you have a Thatcher I one. Wish. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, we, but we do use those. So we have those dolly heads, and we did get, we got a hairdresser from the nineteen eighties, someone who is really into doing the Diana cut. Diana's hairstyle is basically dependent on the haircut. You can't fake it. Mm. We could never have used Emma's hair and just dressed it, you know. And that haircut isn't something that any hairdresser now would know how to do and it's totally counterintuitive. So poor Debbie um, or, or Rod who looked after her 
is basically now only capable of that haircut. And she was previously like a really great modern hairdresser and now she's just screwed forever because she can only do this really kind of niche 1980s stepped bowl thing. I think that once people see this, it's going to become an, um, a huge fashion this thing is what again. We're hoping. So this is, she's going to be win-win situation. Yeah, this is what we're hoping. <laughs> Earlier on, we heard from show creator Peter Morgan about the crucial theme of motherhood in this episode. To explore this further, I sat down once again with director Paul Whittington and we discussed how Peter's favourite child idea opens up another core theme of The Crown. It's so simple, in a way, as an idea. It's so simple and and, and relatable. I've got children and I I, I thought about that question. It's like, (laughs) what, really? And I go home and talk to my wife and go... Have you ever thought about this? Yeah. And so it's an incredibly sort of relatable question to give us access into this story, mm-hmm. if you like. And thematically, there's always been a story in, and this is, goes back into earlier seasons as well, about what sacrifices Elizabeth has had to make for the crown, yeah. if you like, and not least the personal sacrifices and the cost to her personally and to the family when the crown comes first. If you like. So again, it, I guess it's a continuation and a further exploration of that particular theme. But again, it's small things that really unlock it for me. There's a very simple line very early on before she meets any of the children when she goes to Charteris and says, I'd like to arrange all these meetings for my children. He goes, fine. And then she goes out and then she comes back in. Oh, yeah, actually, could I have a briefing document on each of them? <laughs> interests, achievements, you know. <laughs> it's like... What are okay. their full names again? Yeah, exactly. Your Majesty. Martin, I'd like you to arrange for me to see my four children. Uh, ma'am? In private, one at a time. Of course. Um, any particular order? No, I don't think so. Important, I think, though, that each is unaware that the others have been summoned too. Yes, ma'am. Martin, perhaps a short briefing document ahead of each meeting, focusing on each child's hobbies, interests and so forth. Right. One would hate to appear uninformed or cold or remotely remote. Of course, ma'am. So now, you know, the staff are going to... Before these meetings, she's going to be briefed on how they're getting on at school. And and so that, that in a very simple way, tells you so much mm. about the dynamic of that, that family. And then these brilliantly written for big set-piece scenes, the, two, the two-handers again. How different she is with each of them, though, as well, was so yeah. clever and subtle, though, as well. Yeah, and exactly. And, and we did talk a lot about what is the relationship with each of them historically and how would that kind of play out in the dynamic of how you talk to them but the sort of the constant sort of theme if you like throughout all of them is her not being able to be there for them not being able to be there and interestingly little nuggets of research that sort of inform all of that that when we finally get the sort of the revelation to philip about when the confession about bath time with charles which was incredibly powerful, but that was a, some research that came out of something that Charles himself had written, 
about him remembering bath time as a boy. And his memory was the nannies taking him for bath time and Elizabeth would pull up a chair in the doorway and sit and watch. And just that image mm. alone said so much again, you know, these, these kind of really sort of powerful imagery that inform the character and the, and the family dynamic in the story. And, and Charles's comment on that was, well, at least I suppose she watched. And so then you realise it's not only that situation, then you get an insight as to him as a boy about how he felt about that. Yeah. And so to explore that, to send her on such a an intimate journey mm. was fascinating. And, of course, no one better to do that with than Olivia Colman. And it's it's interesting because obviously with Charles and Anne, we've we've very much got to know them as well, but we're kind of, it's it's pretty much our first introduction to Edward and Andrew as well. Yes. So there's almost a lot of weight there in terms of what we're saying about them as individuals and and the relationships they have with, with her as well. Yeah, and you've got one scene, yeah, one scene with each of them to establish that. Yeah. And of course, we're getting a snapshot of these individuals at this particular yeah. moment in time. But as you say, I think what it does, you see the different behaviours, you see how she is different with each of them. And there's a sort of a disconnect with with Edward, just, just not being part of his world or part of his life. And there's, again, from the research, very interesting stuff about Edward's relationship growing up in terms of a parental figure, if you like. He was incredibly close to his private protection officer, his security guy. And he was the guy that he would call if he got an, uh, an exam result when he got his A-levels or whatever it may be. It was, it was this guy that seemed to take on that de facto role mm. in his life. Cricket's going well. Made the first 11 again. How about academic work? A-levels next term. How's that coming along? I read your reports. Don't believe everything you read. If you need any extra help. Don't worry. I've met all the Cambridge admissions people. They're going to make it happen. They're no fools. It's good for them too. A member of the royal family at Jesus College. Just wait and see how the applications rocket. That's not a particularly attractive attitude. It's true though, isn't it? Same with the Marines, same with the city, same with any area of life I might fancy. People will always want me. And what do you expect me to do about that? Say no? There has to be some upside to being who we are. And some return for what we do for the country. It's lovely to see the, the common ground that she finds with Anne, though, in terms of that, mm. you know, they have this this common thread between the two of them and it's where they can almost connect. Absolutely. It's one of my favourite scenes, actually, is the scene between Elizabeth and Anne. And Elizabeth says it at the beginning of that scene, that the life you have is the life that I, I want, is to have this house in the country, to have the children around, to be able to ride. And that's the life that would make Elizabeth content. But to see Anne struggling yeah. with life as a royal, you know, and to see Anne insecure in that way and actually reaching out to her mother and her mother not be able to give her what she needs mm -hmm. emotionally. Yeah. Incredibly powerful. Anne 
And finally, to explore the character of Anne further, who better to be joined by than the amazing Erin Doherty, who plays the princess in the show. Erin, it's so great to have you back on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me back. <laughs> you know how much we love you and Anne on the show, but where do we find, where is Anne? Where's, what's Anne's world for season four? Okay, so basically you kind of start, you've just took a little frog leap and she's married, <laughs> but unhappily. Oh. And, uh, yeah, I know, sucks, but great to do as an actor. Yeah. So she's like in an unhappy marriage, they've got kids and you start see the beginnings of what was this kind of like hardcore armour begin to like crack a bit and she's trying to grab onto people or have like cheeky little conversations to try and rectify this thing but actually what she needs to do and what you see her do is completely crumble in mm. order to understand herself better Yeah, to actually start a healthy relationship and then be that person within the family structure again that people can call to. But I think you kind of start out watching her kind of falter a bit, which is amazing to see because yeah. you don't expect it from her. With Anne and, and Margaret's characters in particular, they are, what I found really interesting about the season is the way that they are really observing things yeah. and being the people that see things that others don't and yeah. pulling that, you know, pointing that out to people. Yeah. For sure. And it's so much fun to play that. And you can see it in the script as it happens. Even like a little moan or a grunt or something, you know, you know what's happening in them behind those grunts. And you know that it's going to be like a flash of like eye contact with Olivia or Tobias or something to just go like, come on now. It's just so much fun to play those people because they're the truth tellers within it. What episode four favourites? Because it starts with her and Philip, Olivia and Tobias. And so he starts kind of almost going, well, I mean, obviously Anne's my favourite. Yeah, <laughs> and no question. You quite clearly have yours. But that's a lovely thing to watch is, is the relationship between Anne and Philip. Yeah. And was that something that from your research and stuff that was really evident and obvious? Or is that something that's been a kind of creative element of Peter's that he's written more about? For me, as someone who really didn't know that much about them in the first place, yeah. in my my conscious awareness of this whole thing is Peter and also Tobias. He was my first day on set on this whole thing. Aww. Like, it was Tobias. So in a way, it kind of genuinely has been this really magic thing that's blossomed and it's just, it is a really, really rare dynamic to yeah. he he really does have though that father aura about him and I, again I don't know whether I can't say whether that's just him being a brilliant actor and just bringing that to our real life but it it just developed and I think whenever those scenes came up it had a weight to it yeah. because you knew that these two characters and people the way that they do relate to each other it will be honest and raw and emotional but in the fabulous way that the royals do without actually probably really saying that much, <laughs> which is amazing as an actor, but they're just two people who can communicate yeah. that way. But this is the thing I love about Anne and the way that you've played her and the way that Peter's written her is that she's almost the kind of truth post. Yeah. She can't not just say how she feels. Yeah, which I've never been given the opportunity to do on screen or on stage or anywhere like as an actor. And so... But I feel like that's that's something that I aspire to as a person because I feel like I'm constantly a bit nervous about the truth and about what that might mean for someone on the receiving end of it. Whereas to actually just go, 
screw this. I'm, I'm just going to say it because actually in the long run, we will all be better off for this to have that clarity mm-hmm. of mind and going no and just have that bravery it is so amazing to mm. embody and i do feel i do feel the benefits of that as erin yeah because she, she yeah she really is that's amazing yeah i love that that you as a person are almost kind of taken examples yeah. of a character that you're playing as yeah. well i want to be a bit more like that I've come away from this going, God, like you need to channel some of that. Even if it's not real, but it's like cliche, but fake it till you make it because it has kind of started to impact like mainly in my, in my like family relationships. I'll just drop a couple of truth bombs and be like, well, well, that that wasn't me, but it came from somewhere that needed to be listened to. So yeah, I'll go home and yeah, thank her. So what were the main pillars on this season then? Because she's... She's become a mum. Yeah, that was a massive one, I think. And I think it did affect her just because of the world that she was in, in this marriage that wasn't what she thought it was going to be, that she may have jumped the gun on. Mm -hmm. Because I saw this blimmin' interview of her and Mark, and they're so young. Like, again, I don't know if she succumbed to the pressure in that sense and then what how that makes you feel in terms of resentment towards your family. Mm -hmm. There's so many different, like... Holes to go down that can affect the way that you portray this woman on screen. I used to enjoy my reputation as the difficult one. I used to relish scaring people a bit because I could control it. But recently... I'm the one who's scared because it started to feel more like it controls me. And it's changed. It's not just feeling angry, but a kind of... recklessness. Where I just want to smash it all up. It will pass too. (laughs) Is that it? Is doing nothing your solution to everything. And then by having children, her not being able to fulfil that Perform as well, maybe, and kind of grappling with that. It's fascinating, but it ultimately it all led back to this woman kind of just needing to scream almost. Mm -hmm. That's kind of how I felt most of this season, was that she just needed an outlet for something. This season I got to do horse riding lessons, which were amazing. (laughs) And I kind of was gutted that I didn't have them before because it taught me so much about why she needs it. Because when you're riding a horse, you can't think about anything else. You're just riding that horse and you have to think about where you're going now. It's like therapy. Mm -hmm. So I understand why it's this lifeline. And to have that fall through your fingers almost, that's crushing. Mm. Which is a similarity she has to her mother. Yeah. So that's their common ground almost, isn't it? That's the thing. And so I'm kind of like, it was beautiful to play and to battle against because these people were so changeable, but you can, I felt you started to feel the warmth come through at some point Mm. from Anne towards her mother, just in in the slightest nod to go, it's hard being a mum. Just being a mum mm. is hard. And to then slap on a queen on top of that. <laughs> yeah. So you can't you kind of just got she kind of took a step back and went, Okay, yeah. I'm having a tough time. You must be. Yeah. 
And up until this point as well, she was the young female cool royal and then yeah. Diana comes in the picture. Yeah. But I'm only human. Sometimes even a pit pony needs a pet on the head. I know the feeling. It's not easy. Working in the heat and squalor of a third world country, doing real work for real charities. But do I get as much as a mention in any newspaper? Or a thank you, do I heck? And yet all she has to do is put on a frock and she's all over all the front pages and everyone's falling over in shock at how wonderful she is. Who? Her. Diana. The only other young female in the family, yes. Against whom I am now always compared. Within the show, yeah. can you talk a little bit about the kind of relationship that Anne has with, with Diana within this? Yeah, I mean, from Peter's perspective and the route that we're going down, again, I have... It's speculated on what their relationship was and whether there were, like, tensions there. And we have kind of leaned on those a little bit. But I think, ultimately, my instincts were, with the Anne that we've created, was that she wants her brother to be happy. And also, we come into the season when Charles is being pressured to make a decision because he has just not... He hasn't. So she's kind of... She's the middleman basically going, look, I want you to be happy, but you you do something needs to happen here because <laughs> yeah. what's going on? You get that kind of push and pull in that sense. But I think ultimately she is happy for Charles that he makes that decision. And in the blossoming of Charles and Diana, she's all for it because it's a good thing. Yeah. But I think there are some heartbreaking moments that to, to film with Diana, like watching her drowning almost like in just the social etiquette sense and all this stuff and it was horrendous to film but I think when moments like that enter the forefront I think Anne is guilty of I don't know kind of like becoming part of the family team in a way and going look you just need to step up and in that sense she could be seen as the bad guy or whatever but I don't think she ever actually intentionally wanted to make her feel uncomfortable. It's just the way that family operates. They are that way, especially her and her father. And I think the Queen kind of comes into it in that sense too. You yeah. just you just get on with it. These are the rules and you have to do it. And in a way, it's more devastating because Diana just couldn't... That's not the way she operates. Yeah. That's never going to help her. But that, that family had no idea. This has been like my first kind of dip in my toe into what this working on screen is like. And the people behind the scenes start off your day and end your day. You're on set for like a bit, but then you go back and you get your hair and makeup off and you have chats and it's and these people, they're like the gorgeous bread of this crown sandwich. <laughs> And it is the most amazingly tasty, gorgeous bread. And no one gives credit to the bread. They're like, God, look at that filling. No. What the hell would a sandwich be without that great bread? So, yeah. That's amazing. I love that. You know? Credit to the bread. Credit to the bread. Erin, I could chat to you for hours. Yeah. And you're still at the start of what is destined to be an extraordinary career as an actor. And I'm so excited to see what's next for you because I think what you've brought to the crown and brought to Anne is... It's made a lot of people really love her. And I'm glad because I think she's so fascinating, mm. but she is a really good woman. 
I'm Edith Bowman and my special thanks to our guests on this episode, Peter Morgan, Kate Hall, Paul Whittington and Erin Doherty. The Crown, the official podcast is produced by Netflix and something else in association with Left Bank Pictures. Join us next time when we go behind the scenes of episode five of season four, titled Fagan. Thatcher's bold economic and social policies have taken their toll on many ordinary people. One such man being Michael Fagan. Determined to reveal his plight and vent his frustrations, he breaks into Buckingham Palace and seeks out the one person he thinks might actually listen. You stole a bottle of wine last time. Only to work up the courage to speak to you. Because I've tried everything else. Writing letters, speaking to my MP, fat lot of good any of that did. Mirage of democracy. So, I've come to you, the head of state. You're my last resort. Someone who can actually do something. What is it you'd like me to do? Save us all. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts.